NWP Radio. You're listening to NWP Radio, a production of the National Writing Project. NWP. Welcome, listeners. This is NWP Radio, a production of the National Writing Project. Today is February 4th, 2020, and I'm talking with Marty Brandt, teacher consultant at the San Jose Writing Project, about his recently published book, Between the Commas, Sentence Instruction That Builds Confident Writers and Writing Teachers. I'm your host, Tanya Baker, at the National Writing Project in Berkeley, California. Marty, who I should say is published, Martin Brandt, um, but who I have known since earlier work that you've published as Marty. So Marty, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Before we get started, why don't you just introduce yourself to our listening audience. Maybe you could tell us something about yourself and your professional life that's not about the book, which is what we're mostly going to talk about. Well, I've been teaching at Independence High School in San Jose for uh, almost 30 years now. And uh, it's a, in the school district where I myself attended school. I was uh, a graduate of a nearby school in the same district. And, um, and so I've kind of been in this district, sort of a company man, my entire uh, life, or at least since, uh, since the high school years. Yeah. Um, and um, I've really come to love teaching at Independence High School. I've, I've come to um, see that the students really are just a, the best part of the job. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a little story that I have about that, of being asked one day several years ago to take my lunchtime and go out and, and be an adult presence because there was some trouble from the neighborhoods that was spilling into the campus. And it was kind of a rough time at Independence. And I remember just sort of feeling like I was going out to get my fair share of abuse, as uh, Mick Jagger put it. And, um, and, and I just felt terrible. And I went outside during lunchtime. I said, okay, I'll go out. You know? and, and I sat there during that lunch expecting the worst because of the problems in the neighborhood. And what happened instead was I saw dozens and dozens of students walking by me, laughing and joking and being loving and kind to one another. And I suddenly realized, I mean, it really was kind of a revelatory moment that, oh my God, they're fantastic. You're an idiot. You have to, you have to enjoy them for who they are. And, and ever since then, I mean, that really was a turning point for me. So I just absolutely love being part of Independence High School. Um, I'm going to say very many times while we talk about this book that I love this book. Thank and you. One of the things I love about it is that your love for Independence High School and the students there and the community is really present on all of its pages. And I think it could be a real guide and a mentor to anyone, but particularly to a new teacher who doesn't quite know how to find a place in the community of the school where they are. Um, yeah, I certainly, had, I certainly had new teachers in mind as part of my audience because I remember all the mistakes and all the miserable <laughs> experiences that I had as a new teacher and, 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 and as, I, as I inflicted on my students too. Yeah, with great power comes great responsibility. I remember the <laughs> yeah. first time somebody complimented me as a teacher and my response was to think of, all the years like 
all the yeah. years that had come before that. Like, right. oh God, what else what, can I do? You know, I'm, I'm, one of my great goals is to see if I can just break even to, to yeah, have as many, right. as many years teaching well as I did teaching poorly. Exactly. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. So on that note, your book really opens with this idea of how you came to think about teaching the way that you do. And it starts with, I had these three questions I couldn't answer. Um, um, I wonder if you could uh, get us started by sharing that story and the three questions that you couldn't answer. Well, the, sto the story was about this sort of shot in the dark moment in my career that turned out to be kind of pivotal. And I was trying to figure out what to do with my next class. And my next class was a very challenging bunch of students. Um, very resistant, as they say. And uh, so I put together a, a group of sentences from the opening of John Krakauer's article into thin air from outside magazine and I and I decided just off the top of my head what if they just tried to imitate it line by line where where Krakauer has a, an, a phrase that starts with an ing verb they do the same thing and see if they could create something of their own and where he has a comma you put a comma or he has a period you put a period and and so I uh, I took this uh, this paragraph to them and it was broken up into sort of to appear almost like verse. And, and I said to them, okay, we're going to try to write like this. Um, and uh, they gave it their best shot. They worked pretty hard at it. It took them, you know, most of them more than a day to do it. Because as I said in the book, most phrases, one phrase, for most people, one phrase looks the same as another. Um, and so being able to separate what's happening in one phrase from what's happening in another became a bit of a challenge for them. Um, and eventually, uh, a student finally came up to me and he said, hey, how, how about this one, Mr. Brandt? I don't think he said Mr. I think he just said Brandt. Yo, Brandt. <laughs> and, uh, and so he had this sentence, the original Krakauer sentence. It was uh, straddling the top of the world, one foot in Tibet and one in Nepal. I cleared the ice from my oxygen mask hunched a shoulder against the wind and stared absently at the vast sweep of earth below. And this student had made a, a reasonable facsimile that went something to the effect of sitting on my bed, one hand holding a, you know, cold 40 ounce old English and the other holding the bong. I took a deep hit, leaned back against the wall and waited to get high. And, you know, as I said in the book, this is probably the moment when I'm supposed to say you should say no to drugs. But I had to admit that this was the best sentence I'd read from any student in six or seven years of teaching. Mm. And so I said to him, yeah, I think that's what I'm after. <laughs> Something along, you know, they, were, they had to make a poster of it. And I had to think of a, a nice uh, dark corner of the classroom where I could put the poster up without getting in trouble. <laughs> and, so, yeah. and so that was the beginning of, uh, that was the beginning of the rest of my career. And what um, I started to ask myself, the three questions that I couldn't answer were, um, well, what's happening in that sentence that makes it move so well, that, that makes it such a pleasure to read? And then the second question was, well, why can't my students write sentences like that? And then finally, the most important question was, well, come on, man, why can't you teach them? And I couldn't teach them because I didn't know the answer to the first question, what was happening in those sentences in the first place. So the book was partly an attempt to share some of these things so that um, my colleagues can operate from a fuller understanding of uh, how sentences work. And how kids work. 
and put yeah, it well, kids especially, yeah, yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's so. beautifully these two questions: how do sentences work, and how do yeah. kids work, are beautifully meshed in this book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because some of the some of the things with that second question, why can't my students write this way, is developmental. You know, if you see a first grader's sentences, they're they're. I mean, my wife teaches first grade, and you know, her, her kids' sentences are adorable. I like my cat. My cat is fun. I like my cat. You know, that's adorable when you're in first grade, but if you're writing sentences that are that short um, and that clipped when you're in high school, well, clearly there's some kind of stalled development. Um, and so what we want to do is, is find the sweet spot in the student's uh, developmental process and, and stimulate them to start stretching beyond these sort of self-imposed sentence boundaries that they carry with them and they bring to their writing assignments. So exciting. So the book, it seems like you're in <laughs> you're, you're the first life. person who ever said that. That's, that's exciting. <laughs> I don't believe I, I tell people, oh, yeah, 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 my boring book. <laughs> well, I mean, I really love sentences. And yeah, me too. I really love yeah. high school kids. So I, gotta, I, I, I do feel jump. like this book marries things I really love. There it is. There it is. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, Tanya. Uh, your instructional strategies and the book you've written, Share the Work, are organized around three pillars. So before yeah. we kind of dive into them, can you just name and describe these three pillars? Yeah, well, the first pillar is sentence focus. And, and this is something I didn't learn about until I started a master's program in composition at San Francisco State. Um, and I, uh, I, how can I put it? Um, well, I'll just go ahead and move on to the next one, and that's sentence development, um, and that's the idea that uh, that we need to help the students, as I just said, break beyond their sort of self-imposed uh, boundaries. Um, and then finally, sentence coherence, which is the idea that sentences have to work together. Um, and so there's a good part of this that's, uh, you know, direct teaching, direct instruction. Yeah. Uh, but then in the, the last part, sentence coherence, involves more like letting the students go and helping understand um, what coherence is that's awesome uh, it is a lot of direct teaching which I think um, with a real clear theoretical frame around mm -hmm. why and what and I love that and that it yeah. ends with coherence which moves to um, uh, more ownership by the students of what they're exactly doing. more independence right so let's start by talking a little bit about sentence focus then. Um, one of the things, as I am, I said I would say a hundred times in this radio show, that I love <laughs> about the book is how clear it is that you love and respect your students. And you seem to tell an honest story about how you develop that love and respect. Like you're not just a saint who fell into a challenging school like, ah, oh, I'm perfectly fully formed as a teacher here right and I think that's really important it really I think it can really help any teacher sort of connect to the work the way you've decided to shape the work in your classroom um, but it, it shows that really your love and respect for kids came in part through adapting your teaching practice a different teaching practice lets you see something different about your kids um, for instance in talking about teaching sentence focus you wrote this we must always remember that our students are skilled practitioners of language. When something falls apart in their writing, it's not because they've forgotten or never learned how to communicate properly on the page. It's not the specter of hip hop, texting, or video games. It's more likely the struggle produced by their good faith attempt 
to fulfill the many demands that we have asked them to balance. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. I mean, tell the audience what you mean when you talk about sentence focus and how it allows us to address this struggle in a way that honors students' linguistic ability so that we don't remediate them. Right. So yeah, but because and remind them what they already know how to do. Yeah, yeah, because so much, so much, so much of the, of the time we see these um, what I call early monster, early re retirement monstrosity sentences. You know, the kinds of sentences that make you say, "Oh my God, what's going on here?" Um, but in a strange kind of way, you know, they're they're doing what you've asked them to do. One of the greatest challenges, especially in teaching writing, is their their cooperation it's it's not their resistance they try really really hard to do what we do or tell them to do and they inevitably um, make mistakes and we need to understand that these mistakes are not evidence of their um, intellectual incorrigibility or something like that we're so quick to make these kinds of judgments and you can hear that kind of thing in the, in the staff room you know that kind of commiseration um, and I remember saying things like that myself because I wanted to be, you know, thought of as a real player by the older veteran teachers, you know. Right, um, right. Uh, and so, uh, so when we say to our students, for example, to, to make sure to, to answer uh, in a complete sentence with a portion of the question in the answer, what we are doing is we're setting, in, setting the students up for uh, possible sentence focus problems um, because every question that we have might have these what I call soft spots, things that are kind of attractive that the students might choose as the subject of their answer, um, but which really only leads to um, a, a, a bad sentence. And they might say something like, uh, uh, you know, you might say, what is, you know, here's some example I had, let's see here. Um, what is meaningful about the work that people do in the Valley Medical Center burn unit? That's a story we're reading right now in one of my classes. And so, you know, there, that's a question that's loaded with, with hotspots. What's the subject of your answer going to be? Is it going to be, you know, what is meaningful? What is meaningful about the work? And, and so the students will respond with something like, what is meaningful about the work people do in the VMC burn unit is that. And then likely everything else is going to go off the rails right. from there. Uh, and then we look at that and we say, oh, these kids don't know how to write. Well, that's a bit of a leap, actually. Once they get past these kinds of sentences, they often recover. Um, uh, and so if, you, if we understand the true nature of these kinds of, uh, of forms, um, that really if they choose the right subject for the response, and what I argue for the students is that most of the time, the right subject should be something that's concrete and um, uh, personal rather than abstract. You know, um, so uh, for example, you know, what is de Tocqueville saying about America and uh, democracy in America? And the students are going to go, what de Tocqueville is saying about America is that we Americans are always doing this and that, blah, 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 you know. Um, and instead of that, we'll just say de Tocqueville, de Tocqueville argues. Um, put them back in touch with the very basic things that they understand um, language to be subjects and acting verbs. De Tocqueville says Americans are materialistic. You know, now there's a good sentence. That's a perfectly clear sentence. Exactly. Now it's a little short, but then I got chapter two for that one, right? Uh, exactly. <laughs> sentence development. Uh, okay. Um, 
And so, uh, so, so the argument about sentence focus is, is uh, I think, a, a really crucial one, uh, that it helps us understand the nature of some of the most challenging sentences that our students are going to present to us. I have to say I'm laughing, not at the student examples, but at the clarity with which you can see how they get there when you put the question and the answer right next right. together. And how, I'm not sure anybody's ever just said that so clearly to me before. So. Yeah, well, I got that from a, a guy, a professor at San Francisco State who I never met, uh, William Robinson, um, who was involved in the Bay Area Writing Project. Um, and, uh, and his class, uh, sort of the class that he was the brainchild for, um, what's called uh, grammar and rhetoric of the sentence. And, and it just made a huge difference for me to understand that. When I was in that class, I remember just being thrilled with it, just like you, you're thrilled with my little sentence book. <laughs> I would be writing these notes. I'm, oh my God, this is what my sentences, well, excuse me, this is what my students are doing. Yeah. And it was liberating. It was, it was li literally liberating. And the beauty of this was that it liberated me from a prejudice. Um, which to me is the greatest form of education anybody can ever get, is to be liberated from one's prejudices. And uh, suddenly I viewed my students with greater respect, and I viewed myself with a little bit more skepticism as the teacher. Mm -hmm. So um, that's a great shout-out to Bay Area Writing Project friend. Uh, hey, no book, uh, Also, when we move to thinking about sentence and learner development and, and this idea of working in solidarity with our students. Um, you're, you bring in Mina, you bring Mina Shaughnessy back to the conversation. Yes. Uh, so I think at first I just want to say thank you. Uh, oh. There are a lot of teachers teaching, I think, who don't know Mina's work. So it's lovely to see mm -hmm. it there again and think about new teachers encountering her freshly. Yeah. Um, I thought perhaps you'd like to say something about Shaughnessy and her work or other thinkers who influenced you to see writing and sentence building as developmental. Yeah, well, Mina Shaughnessy was just, um, her work is just so important for helping us uh, view our students um, with greater respect, with uh, greater respect for their intellect and their abilities and their, uh, their um, the struggle that they, have to undergo to uh, to learn to to write uh, clearly, um, and you know when I when I think about her, uh, it's always with a, a combination of admiration and shame. You know, I admire what she did because she saw these young people coming into City University of New York through the open enrollment program. She saw that they were unprepared, and she heard her colleagues complaining about them. Um, and instead of simply writing them off as I had in earlier parts of my career, she got to work understanding what it was that she was seeing. And I think that if we approach our work with that same stance, then we position ourselves to become much better teachers. So I just, you know, if, if, they, if they made like a, you know, a Mina Shaughnessy candle, you know, like they sell in the stores, I'd, I'd have that. <laughs> I'd be, I'd have an altar of those. I feel like um, this is a brilliant idea to raise money for the National Writing Project. There you go. <laughs> I would also add, altar candles. 
I would also add people like Kellogg Hunt, who did really important research on, on sentence development. Uh, Francis Christensen, um, who uh, came up with this theory of generative rhetoric, which has been really important for me in helping my students go past this idea, or excuse me, past their, their um, like I call them, the sort of self-imposed sentence boundaries. Um, and then William Strong, uh, who's uh, uh, wonderful uh, books on project. sentence combining, yeah have been with me since, you know, those books have been with me since day one, and they got me through some pretty grim days. Um, and, uh, and then finally, uh, Will Robinson from San Francisco State, who I think is not as, uh, you know, famous a, a person from this uh, sort of group, but uh, I think did really important work in that class. I remember reading the description of that class when I was signing up for it, and I just, my heart leaping with joy. Oh my God, grammar and rhetoric of the sentence. <laughs> I, must be, I must be some kind of sick bastard to really. <laughs> yeah, we might share some kind of geekdom Yeah, together. exactly. <laughs> uh, I love it. So um, when you talk about this idea of developmentally thinking about sentences, you basically summarize the goal of sentence development as I love this sentence, teaching our students to extend their T-unit length with free modifiers. <laughs> you unpack that goal so listeners can understand what your vision is? Yeah, well, I kind of wanted, in that section of the book, I wanted to do for, for uh, sentence development and sentence instruction what Malcolm Gladwell does all the time with, uh, with psychological issues, you know, um, to sort of acquaint the, the reader in, in a sort of non-threatening way as much as possible with some of the research before talking about how it goes into classroom practice. Um, and so, you know, to me, the research kind of goes from Kellogg Hunt, who understood that students' um, sentences get longer as they get older and more confident, and that this is the essential difference between um, mature writers and, and uh, writers with less confidence, is the ability to no negotiate phrases uh, and, and clause structures um, within uh, the boundaries of a given sentence. Um, and so, you know, it's not like I want to turn all my students into William Faulkner. Uh, you know, what I, really want, what I really <laughs> want to do is, is, uh, is help them see where it is that they can extend their sentences even a little bit with, uh, with great effect, you know. Um, and so I introduce all these weird um, grammatical terms that I've created. So, for example, the noun phrase, a positive, to me is I call it the smack talker, dime dropper combo. And if, and if I see that a student has uh, learned to incorporate the smack talker, dime dropper combo, not just grammatically, but also rhetorically, you know, Grammatically, it's a, it's a question of execution. You know, where do you place that in a sentence? Um, uh, but rhetorically, it's also understanding when it might be necessary to put it in there. Um, when, it, when it might be um, a courtesy to your reader to let them know what you mean by this particular idea. So, um, so I'm, I'm trying to connect it as much as possible to the needs of the audience. That When we write, we are um, connected to an audience. Um, and at least if we're writing, you know, uh, right. beyond our, our notebooks where we're just keeping our, our ideas, you know, right. um, and that if we're uh, doing that, then, then we owe the audience certain you know, courtesies um, and uh, uh, certain signals, uh, certain uh, bits of information. And so, uh, so that's what I'm trying to do there. Uh, I have not said that the book is, um, besides being 
exciting and um, really loving, having this really loving attitude toward kids. It's also um, very funny. And, um, <laughs> and it, I feel like it runs this register from theory to practice to like human to human conversation in a really rich way that reminds me of m most of the work that I do with people in the writing project. It's a very uh -huh. writing project feeling book. Well, if, you, if you're going to write about something as boring as sentence instruction, you, you better make sure that the writing is interesting. So thank you for that. I, I, I aim to make it readable um, as well as informative. So. so for a teacher who's like, I don't know if I'm that interested in sentences or if my oh. do this with my kids. How could you? I know, exactly. But you keep calling it boring, so I'm going to say maybe there's somebody who I'm thinks sorry. it's boring. I'm sorry. Yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe I need to stop on that. You recommend some sort of direct teaching and focused practice kind of exercise, things like sentence scrambles and sentence combining. Yeah. Um, I wonder if you'd say a little bit about why you think these exercises um, of practice and maybe isolation from a larger writing experience are helpful to kids. Because I think some people have, have heard, of, heard pushback about that kind of teaching. Well, the great thing about this is that it puts the student back in touch with their own abilities mm -hmm. um, as, as practitioners of language. Um, we all learned an entire grammatical system uh, by the time we were four years old without the help of a single worksheet. And, um, and it, we need to be put back in touch with that ability so that when we are saying to our students, here's something that I want you to learn to incorporate into your students, we begin with the fact that they already know it, that they use it in their speech often. Um, but um, of course, speech is unencumbered by the issue of punctuation. And so that's what makes us think that it's something different. What I wanted the students to understand is that it's something they already understand. And so, um, so I'll give them these uh, manipulative scrambles, which I, I you know, just a, a sentence that's been chunked up into different grammatical parts and scrambled on a card. And it's kind of like those poetry magnets where you make poetry on your refrigerator. And, uh, and it's like that, but bigger and made of paper. And, and they have to see if they can rearrange the sentence into its original um, into its original order grammatically. Oftentimes what happens is they'll rearrange it into something that's not the original order, but which is still grammatical. Um, and so what I want them to understand there is that even though it's different, it's still perfectly valid as an answer or as a, as a, a you know, version of the sentence. And then we get to discuss the rhetorical aspect of it. You know, what difference does it make having this phrase here as opposed to here? And so, um, the most important thing for me is not so much the answer uh, that these things, uh, these kinds of exercises produce, but the discussion that goes into it and comes out of it. Yeah. You say that this developmental approach allows our, <clears throat> these are your words, our teaching to become an act of solidarity with our students. And as I've already said, this attitude toward the learners in our room is my favorite thing about this book. Mm -hmm. um, can you explain what it means as a teacher to teach in solidarity with students? Well, I think it just means acknowledging that we're learners too, and that our learning is the classroom itself. Our learning is uh, how to appreciate them better, how to appreciate their abilities, um, how to understand 
their, their struggles in a way that is uh, humane. This is how we develop as teachers. You know, I came into teaching as, you know, this sort of hot shot guy who wanted to come in and change the world with my good looks and my charm or something. And, you know, uh, they're, they're, right. you know the, the students, the students are unimpressed. They were, they were unimpressed with my C plus uh, GPA from the local state university. You know? <laughs> so, no, all my credentials, you know, and, and, um, and so I had to, you know, there, there's this moment when there are multiple moments, I suppose, when you have uh, a choice of how you're going to handle uh, your students. Are you going to write them off or are you going to um, face this as a professional problem? The professional problem of teaching writing is, to me, uh, the great professional problem of my career. And, and it's not a problem. It, when I use the word problem, it's not as a complaint. It's in, more in the sense that mountain climbers use when they talk about a problem. What's the problem of this route up that mountain? How do you get through it? Have you seen that movie, Free Solo? Oh, you know, I have. That guy, he's not long for the world, I'm afraid. But, but oh, what a powerful uh, movie. Right. And, um, and, and I wish him the best. I, I don't, you know, I don't oh, know I know. to be hurt. <laughs> um, anyway, um, so, uh, but the guys like that, they look at it dispassionately. They say, uh, here is the problem, and how are we going to approach it? And um, we tend not to be very dispassionate when we talk about the problems with our students because we get our ego wrapped up in it, and we get a sense of our own failure, which we're not willing to admit, and our own struggle. So we're really locked in a very uh, sort of symbiotic relationship with our students. They str they're struggling, we're struggling. Uh, and sometimes it feels like none of us are allowed to admit it. Yeah. And and once we allow ourselves to admit to uh, to our uh, to our failures, to our struggles, then I think we put ourselves in a real position to grow, and uh, and that's certainly the case as uh, as teachers. Um, and hopefully, it, if we can do that with our students, we can put make them more comfortable with you know the occasional mistake, the occasional flop, um, and view it simply as a step in learning. Beautiful. Uh, the third pillar, which I want to give you some time to talk about, is oh, yeah. the idea of sentence coherence. Yeah. Uh, so students have focused on the sentence, they've practiced on the sentence, and now we're, we're helping them think about how do I put all these sentences that I can now make together, right. and how can I write uh, in order to think. I thought that was a lovely way to think about the that step yeah there was a moment with uh with my great friend and mentor jonathan lovell from the san jose area writing project where i i, I realized oh my god jonathan, jonathan you know showing <laughs> this, this note that i'd taken are we asking our students to uh think in order to produce essays or are we asking them to write essays in order to think and uh and i've come down um on the side of the second choice that uh, when we assign writing it is for a kind of thinking that they're hopefully, or you know, not hopefully, but that they are not a, a level of thinking about a problem that requires writing to really address, you know, to get to that level of level of depth. Exactly. Um, so I'm you, sorry, I interrupted you there. What was no, no, that's exactly. 
it's yeah. a conversation and you are the sentence guy and it's <laughs> so much fun to hear you talk about sentences and kids. Uh, one way that you talk in the book about sentence coherence is um, it and t and the teaching when you move from <clears throat> sentence development to sentence coherence is moving from training it to development. So how does the focus on coherence as you see it move from training students to be better writers to helping them develop as writers? Well, basically I move from direct instruction to letting them go. Um, but the, the letting them go is not entirely, you know, I don't just set them adrift. I okay, give yeah. them a little, I give them a little <laughs> compass that I've created what I call a, the coherence model, which is a series of questions that could, um, that a, a reasonable reader could ask after any given question or after any given sentence. So, um, you know, you write a sentence saying, for example, about Alexis de Tocqueville making an argument about Americans and the, and the reader might ask, well, what do you mean by that? Um, or the reader could also ask, um, can you provide an example? Or um, what don't you mean? Are you saying this or do you mean to say that? You know, and so I've got this series about six questions that um, that I use with the students and I say, go ahead and write, just start writing. But whenever you feel like you're running out of gas, when you feel like you're getting to that point, you know, the real agony of writing is not the writing, which is really kind of fun. It's like riding a bicycle in a tailwind, you know. <laughs> um, but the real agony is when the, the, the wind shifts direction and you're in the tail, you're, suddenly you're in a headwind. And that's, that what happens, that's what happens when the students get, um, they run out of ideas. And, and so then they begin the agonizing process of BS. And that's the part of writing that hurts, is the BSing. Yeah. And so instead of BSing, I say, look, when you run out of gas, ask yourself one of those questions and see if it can get you going again. You know, mm -hmm. I guess it's like having a little power bar on your bike ride. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, so yeah, just ask yourself, you know, what do I mean by this? Most, that's kind of our default setting. What do I mean? What do you mean by this? Um, but maybe it's time to drop in a specific example of what you're talking about. Maybe it's trying to maybe it's time to explain what you don't mean. And I found that when the students do that move, particularly, mm -hmm. their writing achieves a level of sophistication that I hadn't seen before. They really begin to sharpen their message. I'm not saying I tell them to do it in two sentences because um, they tend to rush. You know, so <laughs> I'm not saying this. You know, I am saying instead that. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's that's a huge thing and you know those of us who are college educated uh, adults you know we we tend to have uh, integrated these moves right you know a long time ago and so for us they seem very obvious but for our students it might need specific uh, direction you know yeah. here's what we here's here's what the that strong writer is doing um, they're anticipating these questions on the part of the audience um, and they're anticipating when it's necessary to to do that, you know. And so, um, basically, with a uh, with the sentence coherence, it's it's me allowing them to, it's me letting go. Yeah. Um, but it's also giving them a little just pointed, pointing directions here and there, like like helping out the lost tourist, you know. Nice. Nice. Uh, it's this has been lovely. I've been so looking forward to this, listeners. Oh, yeah. I've been talking with Martin Brandt. He's the author of Between the Commas: Sentence Instruction That Builds Confident Writers and Writing Teachers. It's out from Heinemann, and I'm highly recommending it for people Yay, think about what they want to uh, read and think about in their instruction in the spring semester or maybe as a summer project. 
I want to close the interview, Marty, first by asking if there's anything you want to say about the book or this instructional practice that I didn't ask you about, that I didn't give you a chance to say. Well, I, I guess the most important thing or I guess, you know, a big goal that I have in the book. So, you know, I kept thinking about myself as a young teacher and all the struggles mm -hmm. that I that I put myself through. And I'm really glad I stuck through, stuck with it. And what I really want is for the, for people, especially with this issue of teaching writing, to approach it with less anxiety, both about themselves as teachers and about their students' abilities. Um, and that hopefully in, in, helping people sort of uh, escape this anxiety that we bring to this this professional problem will end up with students who approach writing with less anxiety mm -hmm. um, and who approach it themselves with more belief and confidence in their own abilities as users of language because um, you know a lot of the things that we uh, we tend to um, criticize them for um, if we look carefully we'll see the very things that we want to see in their writing. Um, and if you listen to them talking about the things that they care about most, they might not be expressing it in language that we particularly approve of. Um, <laughs> but you might, you might begin to hear all of these things that uh, you supposedly are charged with teaching them. They might have it already. Um, and so to the extent that we can put them back in touch with this very powerful ability that they have, um, that's really what I want to uh, to impart both to my my colleagues and hopefully to their students. Lovely, thank you. I'm going to close by saying this is one of those magic books about teaching that makes me wish that I were back in the high school classroom. It makes me want to give it a go again. Uh, <laughs> it's a very high compliment. As thank you say so at the end of the book, it is the good life. And if it is a good people want to think about instructional practice that will make them feel that way when they go in their classroom, they should buy this book. Between the commas, sentence instruction that builds confident writers and writing teachers. Thank you, Marty. Thank you so much, Tanya. NWP Radio, a production of the National Writing Project. NWP. NWP Radio.